This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, public housing tenants have long suffered from poor services and ceaseless attempts to demolish their homes and scatter them to the winds. But the coronavirus epidemic presents public housing dwellers with a whole new set of challenges. And a South African journalist is doing what he can to make scientific concepts accessible in the languages spoken by Black Africans. But first, the Black is Back Coalition held a national Zoom conference call on the COVID-19 epidemic and how Black people can fight back. We'll present two of the conference presenters. First up, Betty Davis of New York City. Whether the challenge is public health, police violence, or education, Black power is the answer. I have statistics that show for the last 10 years, black and brown educators have been systematically, ethnically cleansed from the public education system. I have statistics to show that the corporations have been systematically destroying accountable, functioning public schools in black communities. We recently won a court case against a corporation that tried to take over a school that was the top school in the district and the board of that was collusive in trying to shut that school down with the excuse that because of gentrification, it had a low roster. Well, guess what? The rest of the parents that were not zoned to that school, but in that district who were also black and had not been gentrified out said, well, why don't you let us transfer our children to that school and that school could still stay open and we would not have a problem of a low register because every child in the district whose parents care about them want them in that top school. Again, I want to emphasize it's the top school in District 16, which is considered the black ghetto in Brooklyn. We went to court and we fought that battle because this is the issue of community control. Only in the black community can you be accountable for what you are doing and be successful and get fired as a black educator. And the statistics on the ethnic cleansing of black and brown teachers who have been successful has been documented by a court case an education court case called the fiscal equity case in New York City. Consequently, I want to continue with what the new legislation involving this reform tax bill has impacted on our children. The proposed tax bill will disproportionately impact children by reducing support to education, healthcare, workfare, course development, college support, rental assistance, food and nutrition, and more. While 10% of white people are poor, 28% of black people are poor, 38% of black children, the largest percentage of any demographic in America, are poor. That is why the COVID is impacting on us to such a large degree. I'm going to share with you what this impact has meant and on a very intimate level for our sisters and brothers who you can talk about social distancing, but we're not a social distancing culture. 
We don't put grandma in a nursing home if we don't have to. Several of my colleagues are now trying to support their parents who are in these so-called death camps they call nursing homes. They're willing to risk their own lives to go into those homes to rescue their relatives. So when you talk about COVID-19 and social distancing, sometimes it's not an option for us. When they closed the schools, many of the working class people did not have options. Many of the working class people who have children in schools don't necessarily have a partner. So they have to rely on extended family to help support them. So one of these articles that I'd like to share with you, which I had hoped would be on the screen, so I apologize for reading at you. One of the articles is entitled, I Never Felt Like a Single Parent and then the coronavirus hit. <laughs> this woman is saying she is an unpartnered parent. And like her, she relied on support from other adults in her child's life. We need public health guidance that works for us. She's asking for help because as she points out, she listened to the New York Times and she listened to the fact that the coronavirus was coming and she went to the store and she purchased what she thought would be su sufficient. But one thing she did not consider is she became aware of the COVID virus is how will my family stretch across several households handle this? We're headed into our fourth week of self-imposed quarantine. The governor announced a mandatory stay-at-home order. As we settle into our new routine, it becomes clear that the public health messaging around the pandemic assumes that everyone, but particularly working class parents, can simply retreat into a home and be self-sufficient and survive the weeks or months that this intervention will last. But many of us are unpartnered and alone, and we support our grandparents and our non-custodial parents and others are part of our essential care. What we're talking about is what Black people have always used to survive, the extended family network. And the coronavirus attacks this as well as attacks our immune system. What she goes on to say is that someone who wants desperately for as many people as possible to survive this pandemic, I need more guidance on how to create a protective bubble around a family that doesn't live in the same home. I need to know how to make the agreements and take the precautions necessary given the reality of my life. And she goes on to talk about the fact the percentage of workers who cannot stay home and have to go back and forth to work, risking bringing this virus to their home and the procedures they have to follow in order to care for them. And then what happens to these children, especially teenagers, who miss this social interaction? And while you're at work, you know they're probably going to be in the park playing basketball. So what kind of controls do we have as people who have to leave and go to work and leave our children behind? This is the part of the coronavirus epidemic that no one talks about. The social cost of being human, the social cost of loving, we are penalized doubly for that. Education budget. If you look at the breakdown of the education budget, one of the things you notice is, at least in New York City, they have opened up public schools where you can uh, stop and grab, is what they call it. 
You can stop and grab breakfast. You can stop and grab lunch. You can stop and grab dinner for your children. Well, guess what? That budget is your money. You should have been in charge of that budget. You should have been in charge as a nutritionist determining what children would eat. And as Queen Mother Moore said, when she talked about reparations, this is the government's obligation. You should have a quota of jobs in any school system that belong to you, just as white people have a quota in your community. In New York City, the black and brown people, as I said, are 75% of the population. We're not 75% of the jobs. We're not 75% of the panels that determine how the money will be spent. We're definitely not 75% of the educators, of the contractors who have the contracts for the Board of Ed. Anything like plumbing, wiring, electricity. But the most important thing is we are not 75% of the people who determine the curriculum that overthrows metaphysical imperialism. So if I were going to make this presentation real for you today, one of the things I would say to you is, how are you going to change the world if you can't change the mind of your child? So what makes you think you can launch a movement, even in the Black is Black Coalition, without prioritizing education? And it's not enough to vote for someone. You've got to do what Reverend Pinkman did. You've got to say, I brought you in, I'll take you out. Mm -hmm. And we all know the price that Reverend Pinkney paid for saying, I put you in, I'll take you out. They put him in jail for three years. That should have been a flag for everybody to understand that they know what they're doing and it is intentional. I want to conclude by saying this to you. To do the same thing over and over again and expect different results is to be insane. And for many years, Black people have been addicted to the concept that there really is a two-party system like children who believe in Santa. And in nowhere was that more apparent than in the voting for a man who said he never supported the civil rights movement because he didn't want to be tainted with the excesses of the civil rights movement. And that man was Obama. And Black people voted for him to the tune of 90%. Now, I'm funny this way. I'm an Aries. And if I can't get justice, I want revenge. So I want revenge against the Democratic Party. Don't vote for them. I want revenge against the Blackness leadership class. That when we asked for community control of education, which meant controlling the budget, which meant controlling the training programs for teachers, the training programs for aides who were going to work in the classrooms, the training programs and for contracts that service the Board of Education, and they voted for decentralization, which gave the Democratic Party the right and the control over our community boards to elect these corrupt Negroes who stole the money, gave it to the white folks, and put us back 30 years in our movement. I say, if you come out of this conference and you still think you have to vote Democratic Party because you're afraid of Trump and you really think there's a difference, then you are the problem. Or we hear you, Brother Jamal. Thank you, thank you. I, I had another question for Sister Belinda. If she could, in her work, assess the role of the of Black leadership there in Louisiana their degree of being supportive and their role that they have been playing as this coronavirus crisis has been unfolding in that state. Absolutely. We've been on the front line in the trenches dealing with a lot of our Black leaders in regards to our legislation, our elected officials on the local level. And I'm just going to be very candid and straightforward. You know, I think that a lot of the leadership here in Louisiana 
their heads are in the sand, okay? And they will sell you out for, for I heard one of my comrades say, for $5 and a bologna sandwich. When it comes to who's going to get paid for what, they toss things around like hot potatoes. You know, a lot of our complaints and stuff. We have Cedric Richmond was in our first Congressional Congress that was the chair for the Black Caucus. And he was the one that we had to literally take a busload of people to Washington, D.C. to get his response from a lot of the letters that we had written about asking for a comprehensive investigation on all the prisons and jails in the state. And it is still yet to come. So I guess that's the answer to your question. And that's one of the things that I'm fed up with. I think that Comrade Jihad and others have recognized the significance of this whole approach that the coalition is trying to take to this issue of the colonial virus. And that's what it is. It's a colonial virus. And colonialism is when somebody else, some other entity controls every aspect of your life, your politics, your economy, everything is controlled by somebody else. And then this colonialism is the foundation for the system of capitalism. It was enslaving black people and taking over and colonized peoples around the world that created the whole system. And the capitalist system is a vicious predatory cancer on humanity. They lied about the so-called mass because they didn't have any mass. They didn't produce any mass. They didn't have the ability and they can't say everybody needs a mass because if they tell you to get a mask and then you go out and try to get a mask, you can't get it, then they expose themselves. Their inadequacy and their irrelevancy. You don't even have a healthcare system. You have a capitalist system where everything is for profit. Hospitals are not there to cure people, it's there to make money. So the whole thing that we're looking at is this profit-making, profit-based uh, kind of an entity that rests on a foundation of black people and other oppressed people uh, being colonized and enslaved. That's the way that is. If, if this system works normally, we get exploited. It's only when it's, it's, it's an abnormal phenomenon if we have something going well for us as a people. It doesn't happen that way. It functions normally when it's, a, it's an actually prerequisite for the continued successful existence of the system that they bleed us, that they take everything they got. And it's illusions that anybody has if they think this system has any other, any other foundation and basis for existence. So one, the thing that I think is so important about the discussion we've had up to now is that there are few illusions here about the nature of the system itself. The problem, if any, is that we have to be able to say aloud. That's one of the reasons why the problem I had with Bernard Sanders, when people say, well, he did at least say uh, healthcare, free healthcare. What the hell are you talking about? He called himself a socialist. And socialism is something that has to destroy capitalism. It cannot exist as long as capitalism is here. It has to remove, cap it has to negate capitalism. So he is asking for a kinder, gentler capitalism. It doesn't work that way. We have to make a commitment as a people, as organizers, as revolutionary, to destroy a system of capitalism and colonialism. They say, well, you know, yeah, we know that's going to happen in the long run, but in the short run, sell out. And we are saying that, that all you're talking about is opportunism. Opportunism, by definition, means liquidating the long-term interests of that working class for some kind of possible short-term benefit. Capitalism has to go, colonialism has to go, and you have to have organization that's designed to destroy capitalism and destroy colonialism. Black people must be free. That's the, final, that's the bottom line. If we ain't, then we won't have the education that Sister Betty is talking about. And sometimes that's the reason, but you know, dumb white people, 
you know, seem to get over all right too, you know, but uneducated white people. And so that's the basis, that's the foundation. And that's what I like about where we're coming from in this coalition. There are no illusions here about the system. That's what we have to spread out among the people, which does not mean we don't struggle where we are, how we can struggle where we are, which has obvious, been obvious too. If you listen to everything that everybody said, nobody said, oh, wait until the revolution has happened before you be free. No, we said in the process of being free, doing all these other things, but the consequence and the objective uh, has to be to overturn this whole damn social system uh, based on colonialism, based on enslavement of our people. And we have to determine that black people will never be enslaved by anybody else ever again. That's our responsibility. That was Omali Yeshitela of the Black is Back Coalition. Philip McHarris is a PhD candidate at Yale University who published an article in Essence Magazine titled, Public Housing Residents May Be Some of the Hardest Hit by the COVID-19 Outbreak. McHarris says life in the projects was hard enough before the epidemic. So I've been doing work around public housing for some years now and the focus of my dissertation work. And so one of the things that you know, I think is important, as you mentioned, to center the fact that in public housing across the country, many folks who are already in a public health crisis for a number of reasons, and that has to do with racial capitalism, it has to do with white supremacy, it has to do with racist housing policies that date back from the 1930s starting in the New Deal, like onward, and all the legacies of racism before then. But when the coronavirus started, the first thing I thought of was this is going to wreak havoc on folks in public housing. And there's a number of specific reasons why. And of course, you know, we know that at least 44% of folks living in public housing are Black, overwhelmingly also Latino. And in those numbers, we, it might be more because of the kind of punitive ways in which housing authorities deal with folks, a lot of people who live in public housing units can't even say they live there because they'll be penalized or potentially kicked out. And there's you know a bunch of restrictions on who can, can live in public housing. And that is a part of a broader picture of a punitive ways of dealing with black folks and poor folks and folks in public housing. But, you know, there's a number of reasons, you know, public housing tends to be uh, overcrowded in part because of a lack of housing options. And so whenever you have a densely populated population of folks, what that means is that if a virus starts to spread, especially as easy as coronavirus spreads, it'll spread rapidly. So just the densely populated nature of it is one feature, but also it's the fact that for decades, folks in public housing and public housing buildings have been neglected, have been divested from, and the type of maintenance and cleaning that we see in a luxury housing building is not the same, of course, that we see in, in, for folks that live in public housing. And so the kind of cleaning of high contact points, high touch points, elevators, doorknobs, mailboxes, those things weren't getting cleaned before. And so now you have a densely populated housing building, and then you have these, these areas that are not cleaned, and the, the virus can just spread. And on top of that, you have folks that might not have access to health care because of the ways in which racism and, and capitalism shaped access to, to health care. And so when folks need help, you know, they might not be able to get it. And then folks need testing. There's often the hospitals around public housing residencies are already overfilled. So now imagine with coronavirus, the options are just bleaker and bleaker. And just as a, to make it concrete, in a housing project in Brooklyn, 
in the Van Dyke houses, 10 folks died in the past week. And there was one unit in which there was a mother and son who had died. And the only reason why anyone was sent was because the smell of the rotting bodies alerted the neighbors that somebody might have died. The, the National Guard came in and took the bodies and they cleaned the unit. But just the level of, in terms of like who was checking on folks and resources and just the idea that like for poor folks, might not be able to stockpile groceries or you might not have the same resources if you need medication. And so, you know, I think just the fact that the confluence of factors that lead to folks being particularly marginalized in public housing residents leads to something like where 10 folks can die in one housing project and a mother and a son can die in a unit and no one knows. It's a part of that broader legacy of neglect that really shapes a lot of public housing residences across the country. Yes, high density and poor maintenance are a bad combination in an epidemic, but also public housing tenants are in less good health than the average. Exactly. So we, we know in terms of asthma rates alone, which is a risk factor, is disproportionately higher in public housing. And that's specifically due to hazardous housing conditions and um, environmental factors. So at least 20% of residents in housing projects across the country have asthma, and the the national average is only 7.7%. And so on top of that, a significant population of public housing residents are over the age of 60. And so that is another risk factor. And we know all these risk factors. We know that, you know, for folks in public housing, it's been a public health emergency, poverty, police violence, mass incarceration. All of these things have already created these crises for black folks and their health, both physical, mental. And so now when coronavirus comes in, it it just wreaks havoc on folks. And of course, there's folks engaging in mutual aid work, you know, and that's popping up. But folks are dealing with limited resources, in part because housing authorities have divested, city, state, and federal federal governments have divested. And really the only thing that has been funded is policing of these folks which is is part and parcel of a larger story of of punishment and control rather than community divestment, particularly for black folks. Yes, there are plenty of police in the projects, but some of those buildings went for two years without heat. Exactly. And the housing projects I do work in in Brooklyn, this last week in the height of the pandemic, the gas in the whole entire building was turned off. So literally, there's no gas. You cannot use the stove in the whole entire building. And this is not the first time this has happened. This is the second time this has happened in the span of a year. And what they did was after midnight, they came around giving people hot plates. So first of all, some folks were not awake. Then after midnight, people were knocking on your door to try to give you hot plates. So then you had to go to the management office if you didn't get one. Don't interact with people. You had to go outside, further put yourself at risk in order to get a hot plate. Now, imagine this situation stretches on for months and financial hardship is already a reality and you're not even able to use your stove, you're not even able to bake, and you're given one hot plate. So if you're cooking for your whole family, you have to cook one thing at a time. And when folks ask what's happening, what's going on, where's the gas, they don't give any specific answers and it's a part of a broader trend where it's like suspended time folks like housing authorities governments don't care about the the time of black folks of poor folks in terms of like this suspension of time it's just this idea that like you know you'll wait and you'll wait as long as like it takes and so folks 
all across the country are having to deal with the realities of this virus. And like, imagine not being able to cook because you only have a single hot plate. And there's all other sorts of dangers associated with hot plates. And then they give no specific timelines for when it'll be turned back on. And they kind of double dutch and sort of point fingers and the like. But, you know, this has been a problem before. The gas has been turned off. And the reason why the gas got turned off is because PSNG went and said that it was unsafe. They went into the boiler maintenance room and found that it just wasn't up to standard. So, again, if this was a high-end building on the Upper East Side, this wouldn't have happened. It just wouldn't have happened. Tell us what mutual aid looks like in the projects and who's doing it. Yeah, there's some folks doing really good work. There's a network called We Keep Us Safe and Samantha Johnson in Fort Greene is doing amazing work. So We Keep Us Safe is a mutual aid network that has been around for a little bit of time. And basically, they provide mutual aid. They do it from a framework where it is not charity. It's literally that concept that we keep us safe, that like in light of government neglect, in light of government divestment, like the only folks that people can rely on are the people that are around you. They also do it from an explicitly abolitionist framework, right? And so their framework is like, you know, we seek to also end and abolish systems of punishment and policing altogether. And so it's a part of this broader project of saying like, we can keep us safe. One, safety is not just boiled down to crime statistics as the crime statistics as the criminal justice system or the criminal punishment system might portray, but rather, you know, folks can, given the resources organized, can really provide support for neighbors and folks in your communities. And so, so that's one organization. There's some other organizations, but We Keep Us Safe is a network that's also working with other folks in different places across the country in order to provide groceries, they're fundraising, they're going out, delivering, they're doing wellness checks. And there's some other funds and mutual aid networks, but Samantha Johnson is doing great work with, you know, We Keep Us Safe over in Fort Greene. And in your article, you think about what the state of health and wellness in the projects should look like after this epidemic. Yeah. So I think we need a massive shift in how we deal with a lot of things in this country. And one of those things is housing. And so I think there's there's different levels and there's different areas of focus. And so one is that housing projects and public housing over the decades have received less and less funding. And so it becomes even harder to do things that are necessary, like replace elevators. Elevators often don't work. So if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you get stuck in an elevator with eight other people, it's not a good experience. It's unsafe. And so I think there needs to be a massive investment. Like in the government, whether it be cities, states, federals, and and the convergence of, of all three, have the funds if they choose to prioritize the health and wellness of folks, they can radically transform public housing, you know, and that can be the creation of new ones. And it can also be the restoration of ones that already exist. And it's the actual restoration of the things particularly that are most important. And so in some places, they might change the outward appearance of it. And it might also go along with a narrative of gentrification in order to make the outward appearance look better. But when you go inside and when you go in the elevators, that still doesn't work. It's not getting cleaned. So There's funding to make public housing safe, and that prioritizes the health and wellness of all folks, but it first has to get funded. And what happens is when you have a concentrated amount of Black folks and Latino folks who are poor is that it's so much easier to just ignore them, 
right? It's so much easier to just say, we're going to give a billion dollars less. And so I think it's super important to reinvest and to also help people where they're at. So that doesn't just mean let's knock down this project and like disperse people. It's like, how can we restore buildings and how can we also recreate and create new public housing that's safe, that's quality, um, that centers the wellness of folks. And I think an integral part of that is to not just make decisions top down, to ask folks, what do you need in order to have a safe experience living in this residence? And given the resources and tools and decision-making power, the people who live in public housing can remake public housing in a way that prioritizes their health. But a part of what happens is that they're never given decision power, let alone they're not even told when when certain things are going to get fixed or how long things are going to get take or how long things are going to take. And so you know, I think an integral part of this is not only investing massive amounts of resources, specifically around housing, to develop safe housing for folks and housing that prioritizes the health and wellness of folks, but it's also giving people who live there the decision-making power to create the safe and secure housing that they can create given the tools and resources. You know, so that spans, you know, also being able to have different kinds of things that other places like high-end buildings in downtown Chicago might have like folks to clean around the clock and folks to fix things like this door is broken. You know, there's one unit in the public housing residence that I work in that, you know, the door was broke for days on end and nobody came to fix it until anybody could enter in and it's just this delayed time. And so I think the things like that, I, I think a a major piece that would prioritize the health and wellness, we know how policing, police violence is deleterious for the health of folks, for the health of communities. And so a major trend that has happened over the past decades is an investment in policing to a point where in a lot of housing projects, police are there around the clock. And that kind of police presence, that kind of leaving like the lights on and that occupier kind of presence, it, it doesn't prioritize the health and wellness of folks. And often doesn't make people feel secure. You know, in many ways, it can make people feel unsafe. And so the ways in which public housing is policed in a very concentrated and heavy way, as opposed to investing those resources in things like neighborhood schools and wellness programs and public health initiatives, if you wanted billions of dollars in order to invest in these public housing units, and you don't even have to create new money, you can just divest from the policing and incarceration that disproportionately affects these communities, and then divest from that and invest in things like schools, hospitals, childcare, and the like that would radically restructure and deal with the underlying things that cause harm and violence in communities as opposed to we're just going to engage in police control in order to try to make you all safer when that's not necessarily what prioritizes folks' health. However, the governing philosophy among the people who rule this country is that concentrations of affluent people is good and concentrations of poor people is bad. And the experience of this epidemic might provide yet more excuses to break up these concentrations, get rid Mm -hmm. of these projects, those that still exist. Yeah, and I think that's something that I thought a lot about because the issue is the fact that folks don't have resources. I think even when we think back to efforts to integrate, the problem wasn't Black folks living with Black folks. The problem was was that Black folks didn't have resources and white people did. 
I think when we take a step back and look at like some of the essentializing that happens in some of, some of the conversations around like dispersing people or integrating people, poor folks, if you disperse them, are going to be poor in other areas. And it doesn't mean that they're just going to be better off necessarily or that they're going to be safe and secure if you just break up public housing residences, because oftentimes that just disperses. It makes it easier for government to say, well, this is not here. And, you know, we don't have to deal with this concentration of issues that is related to the lack of investment and funds that we've given because it's sparsed out. It's easier. When you go to a public housing residence, you can see all of the issues that are a result of legacies of neglect and divestment. And it's a sore spot. And because public housing is managed by government entities, it becomes a very obvious apparent that it's a concentration of government failure. And so the answer is not necessarily just break everything up, just give folks more resources and wherever they're at. Some people might want to move to a different neighborhood. And if that is the case, then there should be resources for them to do that and not having to wait on a Section 8 you know, list for two or three years before they're able to get on. And then they might get kicked off for a number of arbitrary violations is that provide more options for folks that some people might want to move and some residents might like where they live. You know, they might like where they live, but they just want more supers. They want more community programs. They want elevators that work. And so the answer is not just disperse folks. I think the answer is wherever folks are and wherever folks want to be, give them options and resources and tools to be able to thrive and be safe and healthy. Yale University doctoral candidate and public housing advocate, Philip McHarris. Centuries of colonization and white rule in South Africa left the black majority behind in all areas of education. Today, under black governments, the country's African language groups remain largely shut out of discussions of science. Sibusiso Biela is a South African communicator and journalist. He recently wrote an article on decolonizing science so that it is accessible in the many languages spoken by black South Africans. Biela told of being assigned to write in the Zulu language about the discovery of a new species of dinosaur. The problem was the vocabulary necessary didn't exist in Zulu. Exactly. It's something if I'm writing a science story in English, it's things that I wouldn't have to worry about. I know that the reader understands what a dinosaur is. I know that the reader understands what a fossil is how to describe millions of years and all the processes that come with paleontology and other sciences. But it became a different story when I was trying to do it in Zulu. Uh, And that's why that process in itself ended up becoming a story as well. Well, how did you go about trying to solve that problem? Since there's no word in Zulu for dinosaur, there's no word for evolution. Exactly, exactly. No word for evolution or fossil or dinosaur in Zulu. So what I decided to do is try to write the story in a way that I would try to explain the science to someone else in Zulu. If maybe I'm speaking to my mother about a scientific term or a friend, I find that 
if we're speaking Zulu normally, when the topic of science comes along, any scientific topic, then there's a switch to English. So it brings in a sort of code switch. And I was trying to avoid that so that with more stories like this one, more people will be able to speak science in Zulu. So what I did, uh, the approach that I took with the story is if I can't come up with a word, a new word that doesn't need too much explanation, what I can do is describe what I'm talking about. Luckily, the Zulu language is a very descriptive language. Like even if you come up with new words, those words themselves are combinations of other words or what would be a sentence in English in Zulu becomes one word or two. So it, it's easier that way. So what I decided to do to describe, uh, to talk about the dinosaur was to describe what a dinosaur is. And that got me into a little trouble as well, because even in English, it's difficult to explain what a dinosaur is. A lot of us assume that we know what a dinosaur is based on the movies and what we think they look like. But if we were shown pictures of many animals from millions of years ago, the ch chances are a lot of us would get some of those animals wrong because we would think they're dinosaurs. So even the idea of what a dinosaur is in English is difficult to explain. So what I went for was I thought it was safer to describe what a dinosaur is than to go with the word dinosaur itself because I found that the word dinosaur is, I think, Latin for terrible lizard. And from what we know today, we know that dinosaurs are not lizard-like and a lot of them aren't terrible. They're not even giant or like they come in all shapes and sizes. So what I, the word that I, I decided to go for is Zulu for ancient animal, which in Zulu uh, we say which means ancient animal. It still describes what a dinosaur is, even though it's not too specific, but for the purposes of the article that I was writing, I think it worked out. Well, Zulu is only one of indigenous Black African languages spoken by the majority of people in South Africa. Would all of these other African language speakers have to go through this same process? So South Africa itself has 12 official languages. Two of them are European languages, which is English and Afrikaans. The rest are indigenous languages. So luckily for those indigenous languages, they can be separated into broadly three or four dialectic groupings. So if you know just a couple of these languages, more than likely you can understand the others. With Zulu, luckily Zulu is the most spoken language in the country. So in terms of official use in documentation and other play and other things, other related things, English is mostly used for official business. But in terms of what most people speak, in terms of numbers, the number of people who speak a certain language, Zulu is one of the most spoken, spoken by close to 12 million people in South Africa. So luckily, 
doing this in Zulu sort of kickstarts the idea that it can be done in other languages as well. And the other languages are related to Zulu in the sense that if you translated something that's been said in Zulu into another language, it occurs naturally, it feels natural, uh, as opposed to if you translate something, directly translate something from English to Zulu. What I mean is, if you write a story straight from English and then translate the story into Zulu, the Zulu speaker can easily detect that it's been translated. But with the African languages, if you translate one to the other, it's much easier to organically change to another language than it is from English to Zulu. So yes, there can be other processes that would be in parallel with Zulu translations, but it wouldn't be that every other language would have to start over and translate into their own. But there are enough differences that it would be interesting if I could hear other translations and how they come up with them as opposed to my Zulu translations. So it's a great opportunity to hear those other translations if I ever come across some of them. But the languages are so similar that it wouldn't be too much of an issue. But it does seem to be a big project, especially a big project to start deep into the 21st century. What are the political and power ramifications when science is not accessible to the masses of people? So in South Africa, there's this big move towards moving into the fourth industrial revolution ever since the term was coined during the 2015 world economic forum south africa has been pushing the south african government has been pushing this idea of bringing south africa developing south africa into the fourth industrial revolution what that means is that subjects such as science technology and mathematics are becoming much more important and unfortunately, the only languages that accommodate science, technology, and mathematics, uh, English, and other European languages, including Afrikaans, which was in some time during the apartheid regime, it was made into a language of science. It was brought into the world of science, but that treatment was not given to the other South African indigenous languages. So I think the political implications for making these languages more suited for science and technology keeps them relevant because fewer and fewer people in the country are speaking their, their indigenous languages because they are becoming less and less useful in the world of work. And with the whole moving towards artificial intelligence, the fourth industrial revolution, and a more scientific and technological South Africa, I see these languages as, as becoming even less and less relevant. So what if we try to bring these languages into the scientific fold? It would keep them relevant, it would keep them alive. And with these languages being kept alive comes their cultures and their philosophies as well. And that's what I want to bring forth into South Africa's development and its future. 
because of the dominance of the United States in the world economy, English has become a kind of lingua franca in many professions. But you say you can't in Zulu easily just oh, substitute English words. In normal conversation, in something that isn't technical, you can speak something that is usually spoken in English and speak it in Zulu. The issue comes when it's something technological or scientific to the point that there's this saying that goes around that if you're having trouble with technology or if you're having trouble with science or mathematics, there's there's this colloquial thing that people say in Zulu saying, oh, that's just stuff for white people, <laughs> right? So leave that stuff alone. Like if you're not good at mathematics or science or technology, it's because it's not for you. And you ca- you can't really blame them for saying that because every time you have to talk about any scientific issue, you have to say it in English. You are unable to say it in Zulu, even if you wanted to. There's just no vocabulary. There's just no way to try to talk about it, even if you wanted to. So that's the issue that the the use of indigenous words for science is needed. That's the crux of it. So when you finally got this story about this newly discovered dinosaur done in Zulu, how was it received? The people who did read it, um, I was happy that there were a lot of English speakers who don't speak Zulu who were very excited about it and they sent it around, they shared it as much as they could. But what I found the most rewarding Um, were my family and friends and other people um, um, in my circles and in other places who read the story and found it quite interesting. And from what I could gather, it's people who would not have read the story otherwise. Uh, Not because they don't understand English, it's just it didn't interest them because the whole idea that it's science um, it's, is that it's not for us. But if you write it in Zulu, uh, and a lot of us are bilingual and um, multilingual, uh, basically, in South Africa. So if you give something, if you give someone something in their own language, they appreciate it more. They feel like they, they feel like they can get, they have ownership of it in some way. So that was that's what was rewarding about it it's it's a story that people wouldn't have read otherwise um but they ended up reading it because it was in their in their mother tongue in their home language now you took months coming up with your own process for completing this story. But there are thousands of scientific works or scientific subjects that need exploration and 10 indigenous languages in South Africa. So this is a huge project. Is there any central clearinghouse that's trying to organize this huge linguistic project? I've been a lot of 
interest from other science writers and other science enthusiasts to sort of have a dictionary or a wiki page of scientific terms translated to Zulu and other languages. Whilst those efforts are commendable and a lot of people are talking about them, the idea that we have to come up with these sorts of things at the moment is is quite commendable. But what I discovered from a conference, a translator's conference I attended a couple of years ago was that a lot of language practitioners and researchers had already started this sort of work translating technical and scientific terms from a very long time ago, particularly here in South Africa, they started in the 90s. So this sort of work has been happening for a very long time, but their work usually stays in dissertations and in some library and never gets used. And the nature of language is that you can come up with the most efficient word to describe something, but if no one uses it, then it's it's useless. So rather than myself falling into the same hole of coming up with words, but then not having those words used anywhere, what I try to publicize in all the work that I do around this issue is that I'm trying to publicize more the method of coming up with the descriptions of scientific terms than directly translating scientific terms. Uh, I might come up with a word that a person might forget a few days after they've read the article. But as long as the description or the idea of the term stays in their mind, then I'm happy. I'm not attached to any kind of words that I come up with or anyone else comes up with because we might come up with words and then they stay in those wikis and never get used by anyone else. But even if we don't have specific words that are used everywhere, I think it's better to have descriptions and descriptions can change. But as long as the idea of writing something in an African indigenous language is there, I'd be happy. So it's not so much the words that are most important to me, like scientific terms, but the descriptions or or the efforts and the formulas sort of that people use in order to describe certain scientific terms. And it's interesting uh, what some scientists and what some other writers come up with in order to describe or to come up with certain words. So this really isn't a science project. It's a democracy project. Yes, yes, that is the perfect way to put it. It's a democratic process that has a lot of people participating in it to the point that the individual words that people come up with are not as important as the idea that a lot more people are participating in it and are finding it important for them to to translate certain scientific terms for themselves and for the publications that they're writing for or for whatever platform that they're doing it for. So yes, it is a very democratic process more than, I mean, we've left it to researchers to do it themselves, but it hasn't made it into the mainstream. But what I'm seeing as being more mainstream or hoping it becomes more and more mainstream is the idea that people are talking about scientific issues more and more in their own language. So in my training as a science communicator, what I've learned 
or the adage that I try to live by is that if you're doing science communication to an audience or for an audience, it's best that the audience doesn't know, doesn't even know that you are conducting science communication. You're just having a conversation with people and it would be a surprise for them when they know later that, oh, I've just learned something scientific because as soon as you bring up the idea that now we're talking science, a lot of people's brains turn off unless they are a science enthusiast like myself. But if you talk to them in a way that their guards are down and they don't know that they're talking science, then it works best. Same as in this language project as well, that people should be reading about scientific terms as another new story that they shouldn't have to learn new scientific terms even in their own languages because no one wants to to memorize complex scientific terms. But if you explain complex scientific concepts in a way that they wouldn't even know they are complex scientific concepts, then I think that's a win for science and for science communication. The most important idea from this science translation effort or what what I'd call the decolonization of science or writing or science reporting, we're not doing it because Zulu speakers don't understand English. I mean, there are situations for that and there are already translators who do that, try their best to translate English information, pamphlets, maybe for TB patients or other patients in hospitals who need information that needs to be translated to another language. That's already there. That's already happening. What's most important for me about this whole process is is the idea of democratizing science so that more people participate in it. If more people participate in understanding it, more people will be accepting of it so that it's not just an engineering job, that, so that you, do, you don't just take up science in order to become an engineer or to become a scientist, but you can understand science to learn the skills that come with science, such as critical thinking and skepticism. I pride myself as a science advocate, but I didn't become a scientist. And that's what I try to tell other people, that you don't have to study science in order to become a scientist or an engineer or a doctor or anything like that. It's an important life skill. But then it's difficult to talk about that important life skill if you have to switch to English every time you have to talk about it. And the more science is democratized in South Africa, the more these languages and the cultures and the philosophies that come with them will be able to be relevant in the future and be transferred in the future and survive towards the future, even when we leave everything else behind about our own cultures. But if the language survives, then Africa survives. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.